Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. As humans, all of us can do what any other human in all of the human race has done, is doing, or has a dream of doing. We are all capable of doing all of it. My guest today on the SIDCast is Steve Swain, one of the most interesting people I've met in New Hampshire and all of New England for that matter. He's a chaired professor of music at Dartmouth College. He's written several books, including a book on the legendary Broadway talent Stephen Sondheim. He's Dartmouth's point person whenever world-famous personalities visit the university via the Montgomery Fellowship, and his office walls are covered with photos and posters of some of those people, from Salman Rushdie to Cornel West to Yo-Yo Ma, and even Jake Sullivan, the man who helped negotiate the Iran nuclear deal under President Obama, who I also did a podcast with back in September 2019. Steve Swain also teaches courses in art music from 1700 to the present day, opera, American musical theater, Russian music, and American music. He's received fellowships from the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation and the National Endowment for the Humanities. What makes someone interesting is not just what they do, but who they are as individuals and how they choose to live their lives. So I should also mention that he helped work his way through graduate school by playing piano at a Nordstrom store. This by someone who's an accomplished concert pianist. And he's also taken a walking around campus, even in winter, in New England, in a Scottish tartan kilt. When I met Steve, I knew he was just the right person to have in the sitcast. The podcast about people many may not have met before, but once you do, you'll wish you knew him your entire life. Let's welcome Steve Swain. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Steve Swain. Hi, Steve. Hello there, Sid. It's great to uh, be with you. I'm here in a little alcove around your uh, office here at Dartmouth. It's reasonably quiet, so we can chat. And you're also dressed in an interesting way, and nobody could see, but we can describe. All right. Could you share how you are dressed today, and whether this is something the way you dress ordinarily, or there's a special day today? This is how I dress ordinarily, and there is a reason why. So we'll start from the top work our way down. From the top is not all that uncommon in terms of button-down shirt, something I've loved since high school, a long sleeve, a wool, merino wool t-shirt underneath that. I love the particular company, happy to make recommendations about them. I'm wearing a Fair Isle vest, which is a little bit more colorful than normally I would wear up top, but uh, I'm a knitter, so this is a vest I myself knitted. Hmm. And so this was something I completed this summer. And I'm really quite pleased with how it turned out. It looks great. It looks like a lot of work. How many hours does it take to do that? Well, people ask me that about knitting, and I really never think about the time. It's more the interest of the project. I was talking to a colleague earlier today. When she knitted, she never got impatient standing in line or waiting at a traffic light. Knitting is something that calms for me. Knitting makes... When I take knitting to a meeting, it makes me feel like I've accomplished something. So I can come out of a meeting and say, whatever else happened, I got four rows knitted or something like that. And for me, knitting also teaches me a lot about life. There was a sleeve for a sweater I was knitting just recently. I got down to about the wrist and realized I hadn't followed the pattern correctly. And so I went all the way back up to the shoulder. This was a particular way of knitting a sleeve. I went all the way back to the shoulder, ripped it all out, and put it all back in the right way. And to me, that's what a lot of life is like. If you want to approach it properly, sometimes you get to a certain point realize that you made some wrong steps along the way and it's not simply kind of kludging something together at the end. Sometimes we do that, but Mm -hmm. sometimes it might be beneficial just to rip the whole thing back to the studs and put it all back in. And so so, are you a perfectionist? Sure sounds that way with that description. So one of the things and we'll get to the waist down because I think that's the part that you want me to talk about in a second in terms of what I'm wearing. Am I a perfectionist? No, but one of the things that people may want to know about me is that in a former life I was a concert pianist. And as a concert pianist, you have to be able to play all the notes on the Mm -hmm. page and you have Mm -hmm. to play them in a certain way. Mm -hmm. 98% is not good enough if you're a concert pianist. It really needs to be 99 points, something, something, something percent. So that is my training to bring something to the point of as close to perfection as possible. So I would say it's more a trained perfectionism Mm -hmm. as opposed Mm -hmm. to a natural perfectionism. 
But there's a lot of joy in that. Yeah. So I know we will get to the rest of uh, your outfit, but are you a jazz fan as well? I am not. Interesting. And I don't, you know, people can't see me. Uh, you can look me up on the web. I'm African-American, and that has something to do with what I'm wearing from the waist down, mm-hmm. which we'll get to in, in just a second. Is this not tantalizing enough for you listening? <laughs> when I started my lessons, which happened to be in junior high school, the elementary school teacher saw a lot of musical promise in me. The only thing at my house that anybody played was the stereo. So it was something novel to think, okay, what am I going to work on in terms of an instrument or voice at age 11? And my father was a great lover of the jazz organist Jimmy Smith. So we ended up getting an electronic organ and I started my lessons on the keyboard learning, if you will, jazz organ. And so I would bring in sheet music And a typical lesson consisted of three things with any particular piece of music. I can vividly remember The Birth of the Blues was one of the songs I worked on. Also, April in Paris. Mm. So I had to play the song as it was written on the sheet music. Then I had to play the left hand and the pedal as written on the sheet music, but improvise a melody on top of that. And then I had to transpose the song into a key other than what was on the sheet music and more or less did that for every piece. And so that ended up serving me in incredible good stead. Uh, One as a composer, which is also my undergraduate degree is in piano performance and composition. So served me in good stead as a composer, but also as a pianist. So while I wouldn't call myself a jazz pianist, another way of calling what I did would be a society pianist where I would do improvisations of music, but it was not as free, if you will, as a jazz pianist. All right, right. So to connect the threads on this one. So a jazz, a person that's all about jazz might just create a new pattern on the spot as opposed to kind of ripping it up and doing it the way it needs to get done. Well, there's a little bit of everything in what you're saying, but where I was going to go next is that uh, one of the things I did in the 1990s, I was working on my PhD at the University of California at Berkeley. And on the West Coast, those of your listeners who are on the West Coast and some on the East Coast know the store Nordstrom. Very, you know, based in Seattle, but uh, mostly on the West Coast. There are some stores here on the East Coast. In the 1990s, Nordstrom had live piano music in each of its stores, Mm. and I was a Nordstrom pianist. So I think the difference of what I would call a jazz pianist and a society pianist in my construction is that I would play the song as it was written, and we'll come back to that in a second, and I would improvise a melody on top of it sometimes. But typically, if I found something I really liked, that would be the thing I would tend to do more than once. And so it was kind of a a live composition session as opposed to just always improvising. And one of the best illustrations of this, and I think some of my students have loaded these things up on the web. I'm kind of a little annoyed with them. But if you look up Steve Swain, Holiday Twists, you can hear some of my improvisations that more or less are fixed in the sense of they become compositions. And these were things I had come up with while I was at Nordstrom. And I'd have people coming up to me and say, do you have that? This was back in the day of CD. Do you have these on CDs? And so I ended up recording a, a number of my improvisations on holiday classics because, you know, in a three or four hour shift, I got tired of playing Jingle Bells the same way all the time. <laughs> so that was my way of then constructing, you know, weaving or sewing the threads together. And so the piece of fabric always held together. I was always satisfied with that thread. So I have to ask you, how did you get the Nordstrom gig? Is this a, just a job while you were going to school and you knew how to play piano? Because it's quite different than being a concert pianist, so, yeah, to I'm say not, the least. I'm not even sure how I first, the audition process for becoming a Nordstrom pianist, but I had put my way through somewhat in, in college, definitely after college, by playing piano for private parties. Okay. So again, my organ lessons taught me the Great American Songbook, and I was a fan of that. So I knew all that repertoire. I made a comment just now about, you know, I would play things the way they were written. Well, actually, most of the things I would end up playing from the Great American Songbook and like the Beatles or Disney tunes, I never saw the music. I would listen to it. I knew enough about music theory as well as my background as an improviser to know then how to play that once I got to the store. I can't remember if it was Aladdin or which of the movies it was, but I can remember having the CD in my car as I was driving to work to go to Nordstrom to play the piano and then sitting down at the piano and playing those songs from that CD. 
So that was a skill I had that most of my colleagues at UC Berkeley... You just were listening to it for the first time? For the first time. And it stuck in your brain and you were able to play it? Well, because I'm listening to it, and this is one of the reasons why I have a very difficult time going to restaurants that have either live or background music, because Mm -hmm. I'm analyzing it. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, those eight bars did this, the melody does that, oh, that was a sixth leap up, it's in the minor key, it's this, Mm -hmm. these chord changes, so that is just natural for me that I do that. And so, yes, that's what I was doing as I was driving to work. I do this also when I listen to a a symphony uh, for the first time. So it is a little bit awkward for me when I'm teaching students. It's like, what, you can't do that? That's not how you think? And it's like, well, no, that's not how they think because they weren't trained to do that. Yeah. So I try and train them how to do that. Here's what's really cool about that. It's a type of pattern recognition that you have trained yourself and have that natural skill that you can listen once, I guess, and you see the pattern, then you could see it almost in writing in front of you, in notes of some type. But the skill of pattern recognition is a skill that's used in every field there is. So I was going to say about that as, you know, the fair isle vest I'm wearing, it is a pattern. Yes, it is it, a pattern. And so knitting, you follow a pattern and you quickly realize how to achieve the pattern, the look you want. So for me, knitting and music go hand in hand, Hmm. no pun intended, but it's the same kind of dexterity with the hands, the same kind of uh, creating a pattern, making something beautiful out of threads of sound or fabric. So it's all of a piece for me. By the way, just side note, were you good at math also? Because you know that, that kind of, I, yeah, well, I don't know if it's true or not, but yeah, math well, and music, they yeah, go together. Well, I mean, it is true that math and music go together. Funny story to me, I took uh, math all the way through junior high school. In high school, I stopped. I didn't take the 11th grade math because I, for whatever reason, I was doing other things. And I went back in 12th grade. I was going to take the 11th grade math class, and I took the entering exam, and I decided, boy, I didn't want to work that hard. (laughs) So, no, I'm not taking this class. And I went to the teacher, and he said, well, that's a shame because you scored the highest on this. Without preparing for this. Without preparing for this. Without doing anything. Well, yeah. So it was all of the 10th grade math up to that point. So, yes, I guess I was good at math. Yes, you were. Balancing my checkbook is about all I can do now. (laughs) And the bank does that for you. So, So, okay, let's get back to the garb. Keep going. Okay, so I think I described everything from the waist up. Yes. I think the thing that is the most unusual that people would notice about me, and this is something I have chosen to wear every day as I'm wearing a kilt. So people look at me wearing a kilt, and one of the first questions they have of me is, are you Scottish? Which I find it is an interesting <laughs> question in and of itself, because as I've already indicated, I'm African-American. So people talk about Black Irish. Is this a, are you a Black Scot? It's like, I find the question in and of itself illuminating, because let's step back for a second and just think of men's apparel from the waist down. Men have a limited number of choices. No kidding. We have long pants and we have short pants. Now, within those two kinds of pants, you can have sweats or you can have gym shorts, but that's more or less it. I don't know what other options we really have as men. But we do have the option of kilts. Now, kilts do come from one particular part of the world. But when I put on my first kilt about more than a year ago, it was a black watch kilt. And the black watch tartan was something I've always loved. I've had probably something in black watch ever since high school. And when I put the kilt on, it's like, this feels right. Hmm. This just feels like I belong in a kilt. And so I decided to make kilts part of my life. And this particular kilt that I'm wearing, the tartan is called Swan. It's as close to Swain as I can come. Now, in terms of Swan, Swain, Scott, some people may know King Canute. He famously, the story about him is told that he stands at the edge of the sea and that he can't hold back the tide. And so, in other words, a king's power is limited. He's a king in the British Isles right around 1,000. His father's name, Swain Forkbeard. Spelled almost exactly as my name without the E. And so there are a number of swains in England and Scotland Hmm. that also intersect with the Vikings, who, when the Vikings ruled the seas, they came around and screwed everybody, literally and figuratively. It's likely that of the 31% of my ancestry, according to Ancestry DNA, that says I'm from Europe, it's likely that some of it is traceable to the Swains. And so the swan tartan that I'm wearing is, one could argue, is my clan. Quite apropos. And then we go to... 
I'm wearing kilt hose. Kilt uh, hose. Okay. That's what these are called. I'm Very big socks. There, yeah, that's right. Uh, so they come up about to the knee, and then they, they fold down, and they have a little bit of ornamentation on yeah. them. Then underneath the kilt hose, I have what are called garter flashes. Theoretically, they hold the hose in place just like any sock garter would. The garter flashes happen to be in the swan tartan. And then the last thing, you know, I also have a spore on, which is the man's purse that yeah. uh, comes in front. And I have a kilt belt on that you can't see because it's under the vest. At the very bottom, in terms of shoes, I'm wearing Doc Martens. And I have <laughs> nice. what I call a shoeseum at home. I used to wear only Merrells because I have to have orthotics. And when I found out that Doc Martens fit well and made my feet feel great and then found out that they have so many different styles and all. I'm a clothes horse by nature, and so I have a shoeseum at home, and it's almost exclusively of Doc Martens. I like that shoe shoe me how'd you say it? Shoeseum. Shoeseum. <laughs> spelled with a Z in this case. To, uh, you know, get the Z M sound. Okay, now we got that out of the way. People do ask you about this besides me. Right. I mean you feel comfortable with that? It's kind of Yeah, well, so here in the Upper Valley where we are, and I've been here at Dartmouth now for twenty years, mm-hmm. I stand out and I've always stood out. I can remember being at the counter of our local diner here in downtown Hanover. It's called Lou's. Sitting at the counter. My my first month of being here and having a wonderful conversation with a mother and her middle school aged son. And the son asked me, so how does it feel to be new in the area? And I asked the son, well, how do you know that I'm new in the area? Hmm. I knew the answer. I wanted to see how he would answer it. Interesting. And he's hemming and hawing because he doesn't want to say the answer that we both know is the answer. And the mother so discreetly, and I love the answer, said, you're going to find out that this is a rather small place here. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I'm African-American in the Upper Valley means that I already stand out. I can remember another anecdote where I was at the Kmart, and that day the local paper, the Valley News, published the results of the 2000 census and broke down every town in the Upper Valley by ethnicity. And Orange, New Hampshire had one black person in it, so it was unusual. Most of them had two or five or ten or maybe more, but Orange had one. And I can remember walking into the Kmart and people were looking at me, and I'm thinking, oh, you read that story too, and no, I'm not the guy from Orange. (laughs) So... I always stood out, and I decided that in the last year, well, since I already stand out, have received looks about, you know, I don't fit the typical profile of what people think of Upper Valley people look like. It's like, well, I will give them something different to look at in terms of me standing out. And so that has been an interesting phenomenon as people come up to me saying they like my kilt. Sometimes I wear leggings underneath other kilts and they'll like my leggings. And for me, part of it is to say to the wider population here, there are different ways of being you Mm. than the ones maybe that you've chosen or that society has chosen for you. I came back from a conference a couple of weeks ago We had a person at the conference who is, I'm not sure they're transitioning from male to female or they're just gender fluid or what, but they came up to me at the conference and I wore kilts the entire conference. And they said that the way I dressed made them feel more comfortable to move in the world. And that's part of why I'm doing this. I think that at a school like ours where we talk about diversity, inclusion, equity. I think our students understand that and maybe are living into that a lot more easily than we as faculty and staff are. And so I think all of us need examples of what does it mean that we say diversity? What does it mean that people can look different or behave different? And frankly, I've wondered in my own mind, would people at Dartmouth have more difficulty were I to transition from male to female Hmm. than it does have if I wear kilts? I don't know the answer, but it is a question I ask myself. And, you know, people have asked me, like, why do you have to wear kilts? Are you going to wear kilts all winter long? It's like, you know, in Scotland, it does get cold. So and they do wear kilts. So I don't understand why I might not wear kilts and their top coats and kilt hose. So there are other things. But it is mostly comfort. As my dean said, I look good in them. So those are reasons to do them. But also then for these wider sociological things. And I'll make one more lap around this track. It's interesting to me that food and clothing have are marked in certain ways 
that we know where they come from, and yet we kind of slide into them in ways that we have to negotiate. So the fact that sushi is very popular. Mm -hmm. Most of us don't argue that we have to be Japanese in order to eat sushi. Mm -hmm. Where I grew up on the West Coast, my Japanese friends had zoris, and I thought, you know, they were the only ones who wore zoris. Zoris are kind of the equivalent of flip-flops. It was the surfers in the West Coast who discovered zoris, you know, reappropriated them for surfwear. And now all folks wear flip-flops. But nobody thinks you have to be Japanese to wear Mm flip-flops. So I think it's interesting that, you know, again, that question, are you Scottish? What, do you have to be Scottish to wear a kilt? Or as I, when I'm really feeling cheeky, it's like, okay, so do you ask an Edinburgh or Glaswegian youth who raps if they're (laughs) African-American? No, you don't do that. Rap is universal. Kilts should be universal. That's my attitude. Enough of that. It's very interesting to think about how people perceive others. Of course, as we know, from how we look and and how we dress and the signal, you're actually turning on its head to kind of tell a story or share a lesson, which I think is really fascinating. Do your uh, students ask you about what you wear, or or even maybe more fundamentally, since there are not that many African-Americans at Dartmouth in general in the Upper Valley, do African-American students come to you to talk to you? So we'll start with that second question. African-American students come to talk to me. The answer is no, and I've not been able to figure out why. It's not that I've tried to hide myself, but I'll raise this a couple of notches. I just gave a talk, just meaning in the summer, the admissions office brought in some first-generation students in high school, they would be first-generation to go to college. And they asked me uh, to be one of the faculty to volunteer to offer up a class or a lecture or something. And my thinking was that some of these first-gen individuals, the likelihood of them being persons of color was pretty high. Mm. So I thought it was important for me to be there to present. And sure enough, they were pretty high. And the lecture I gave to them, I entitled, What is Essentialism? And I started by asking them if they knew the definition of essentialism, and none of them did, which I figured they wouldn't, but they did. And so we just broke it down into other parts. What is an essence? What is something that is essential? And so as we unpack those words, then we could talk about, well, we slap an ism on the end of essential. So we're saying that these things adhere to this particular thing. That's what essentialism is. So as it pertains to us as individuals and us as a human race, what makes us essential or what's essential about each one of you? And so what I did in this gathering is I asked all of them to come up to the whiteboard. There are about 60 of them. And write up on the board, who are they? What makes them essential? Hmm. And one student wrote exactly the thing that I say about myself. And many of them, you know, things like I'm more than my color or I am my father's daughter things like One student wrote what I had in my slide later. I am human. And I emphasized that and said, as humans, all of us can do what any other human in all of the human race has done, is doing, or has a dream of doing. That is, we are all capable of doing all of that. So now, in terms of my African-American students, it turns out I don't work on African-American topics. Mm. So I, in my scholarship, I work as it's kind of weird. Here's this West Coast black kid who also happens to be gay, who comes and ends up working on mostly East Coast, New York-based Jewish composers. And so I've had to learn a lot about Jewish life on the East Coast, which I, I had no idea it included going to camps in Maine dedicated to Jewish kids because they couldn't go to the Waspy camps uh, and they come from Orange. And you know, so I learned a lot of things mm-hmm. that I would have never thought to know. Mm-hmm. Now, one could argue that, well, I will never know as much as somebody who comes out of those communities. And so maybe only those people should be telling that story. Well, I find that rather reductive. I find that, well... I have a view of what's happening in that community that I can only have because I'm not in it. And things that might be transparent to other people, I begin to question, and then that unpacks a lot of information. I wonder sometimes if the fact that I don't work on jazz, or I don't work on gospel, or I don't work on things identified with the Black community historically makes me a little bit farther removed from some of our Black students. Not all, but some Mm. of them. And, you know, I'm fine with that because, again, I want to say to them, to myself and to the rest of the campus, 
we are not what we present necessarily in the sense of because I'm black doesn't mean that I only can do things marked as black or because you are Asian, you can only do those things marked as Asian, that we contain multitudes, all of us. And if I engage in African-American topics, you know, I can do so authentically just as I can engage in Jewish-American topics and in a certain way do so authentically. So I welcome students of all colors coming to talk to me. But yeah, so it's a very interesting point you bring up about it's been called, you know, cultural appropriation, and that's become a bad thing. And so I did a podcast not that long ago with the best-selling author, Jody Picot, yeah. uh, who's really fantastic and written many great books. And, and she said in our conversation that as a white woman, I can't describe or understand what a black kid is going through, but I sure could describe what the white people around that kid are going through. And then you have the like the really extreme that's gotten, you know, we're starting to hear more of these stories come out. Un- unbelievable how many. But I'm from Canada and the Prime Minister of Canada, Pierre, Elie, uh, not Pierre, that's his father, Justin, Justin Trudeau, Trudeau and his blackface. And his blackface, right. you know, which is going over all sorts of lines. But I want to ask you, because you're describing now, you might not be a Jew, but you sure could describe what it's like to be a Jew and a Jewish musician, what that life is growing up or a composer, really, which I don't know if this is an accurate depiction, but it sounds like it's going against this kind of dominant view that cultural appropriation is just wrong. I don't come down on the side of wrong or right. I come down on the side of humanity is complicated. <laughs> and what I'd like to try and do is to disaggregate all of these categories to such a degree that we're talking about individuals who happen to be members of various communities mm-hmm. as opposed to talking about the communities themselves. Mm-hmm. So to give you an example, there was a meeting I was in a couple of weeks ago where a fellow who presents as Asian, you look at him and you think he probably has Asian predecessors, yeah. is talking about Native Americans mm-hmm. and talking about them in a way that sounds like he may know something about them. And you begin to wonder, did he read up on them? What's the experience? And he was somebody else in the meeting began to contest his authority to be able to talk okay. about yeah. Native Americans. Yeah. This Dartmouth student grew up on the Hopi Reservation. He is probably more Hopi than many students who grew up on the Hopi Reservation are Hopi. He sees himself as part of that community. And so who would I be to disenfranchise him from that community that he calls his? And to say, well, you can't be Hopi because you're Korean seems to be ascribing categories in ways that are a little bit too rigid. Mm. And I want to say we're far more fluid in those kinds of situations Mm. than say that because you're black, because you're gay, because you're Jewish, these are the things you must know. Or, and these are things that you don't have to know about. It's like, no, I want to know Sid Finkelstein because, you know, Finkelstein sounds like a Jewish name to me. It may not be. It is. And then, you know, Canadian, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. You're in top business school. So there are so many things that make you, you, that are a unique mm-hmm. blend. And so I want not to position you within the Jewish or the top or the Canadian categories. Those mm-hmm. are things that inform who you are. They are not essential necessary. I mean, they are parts of you. They make you who you are, but I can't necessarily pull on one of those threads and understand every bit of you because it's the combination of all those that make you you. Right. You know what happens is it's hard to do the work to know what somebody is really like. It takes some energy. Right. It takes some time. And so we look for indicators. It's almost like in research. Taxonomies. We're we're looking for data points. Right. And those kind of identity characteristics you just described are common data points and we all could see them, uh, certainly for racial background, you could see. It's harder to see religion. It's harder to see nationality. But, you know, if we want to know, we ask. But we ascribe a tremendous amount of meaning to that. And I feel like we're in an era now where with this idea of having the nerve, the audacity to speak for some other group that you are not part of is really looked down upon. And I think what you're saying is, well, you're not speaking for the whole group. You're just talking about that person. And if it's really a problem that you can't do, if we take cultural appropriation, we just kind of extend it to an extreme. You can't have biography, which is what you do for a living. Because how do you put yourself in the shoes of William Schumann? How does that happen? You're not that person. But yet, you know, you understand that person better than almost anyone (laughs) in the world (laughs) because of the work that you've done. One of my driving mottos in my own life is I want to be about the business of increasing the circle of we and decreasing the circle Mm. of they. Mm. And in 
order to do that, that means that I have to drop down my walls and other people have to be willing to drop down theirs. I mean, we spend a lot of energy defending our turf, if you will. So I have to defend being black or defend being gay or defend being a musician. I'd rather not do that. I'd rather welcome other people who are not, who are black and gay and musicians or who are not black or who are not gay or who are not musicians. And let's all figure out together who we are and what we want to do in this world. I find that much more energizing and much more hopeful than trying to say you don't belong to this group because you don't fit because of where you were born or what you look like or how you dress or things like that. So I, in essence, the way I'm living my life, both internally as well as the way I present myself, Mm -hmm. is to establish a challenge to other people to say, am I welcome in your world the way I am? I'm wanting to welcome you into my world the way you are. I may not always succeed, but I'm going to try to be that kind of person. Now, will you be that kind of person for me? So, Steve Swain, I want to transition our conversation a little bit to music and the work you do in biography. And you're a concert pianist. You have performed in all sorts of places, San Francisco Symphony and many other places. But you spend, is this correct, most of your time researching composers and then writing about them, writing books about them? So, by training, I'm a musicologist. As I mentioned, I have a Ph.D. from the University of California at Berkeley, and that's in historical musicology. People say, what's a musicologist? It's like, well... Ology, the logos, you know, the word or the study of, and that's what a musicologist does. A musicologist studies music the same way that a biologist studies life or an anthropologist studies human beings. So the kind of study I do in music has tended toward the biographical. It's not, it wasn't intended to be that. I can do all kinds of things with watermarks or looking at manuscripts or talking about social constructions around music in and of itself is a fascinating topic. Why do we listen to the music we listen to? I may also have a uh, project on music neuroscience and ethics on how music rewires our hardware, if you will. But I've written a biography on William Schumann. I'm slated to try and write some biographies on some other gentlemen. And my very first book was written on Stephen Sondheim's music, which I ended up calling, in shorthand, the kind of book it is, a biography of musical style. So I am interested in talking about stories and history in that particular way. Why did you choose, uh, I mean, Stephen Sondheim, really famous West Side Story, and Sweeney Todd, and many, many others. So you don't even have to justify that, but I'm curious, why him and not somebody else? Well, I did have to justify that. So when I was... Beginning my Ph.D. program in 1990, at that time, musical theater was not considered the kind of thing that respectable musicologists studied. Hmm. This was a time when opera was just becoming something that serious musicologists would Hmm. study. And the challenge that musicology has had with certain kinds of works is that they have preferenced, or we in my guild have preferenced single author works that have a fixed or a fixable score that is immutable. So this is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It will always be that particular set of notes in that particular order. We can trace the stemma from the sketches to the first engraved edition, and it was authored by Ludwig von Beethoven in, and I can't remember the year, 1804. So that is the way that had worked. Well, opera is not a single author work in as much that somebody else is the librettist and somebody else is the one who designs the scenery and uh, all these things go into making it. We were just at a place where, and, and I should say, and then there would be different versions of opera that... This is a version that was done in Venice, but this is a version done in Paris. So which is the right version of this particular opera? And so we were just coming to a place from the 1980s where opera was considered a a topic of serious musicological discussion. Well, musical theater was several rungs below in terms of that because it has a pretense of being a popular musical form. And popular music was also something that up until the last 25 years you didn't do. Can I stop you right there? Yes, you Why may. is the fact that something's popular, why does that lower its prestige among the elite that study these things? Well, you used the word elite, and I have to back up a little bit and say that when I first heard about this organization, the American Musicological Society, and perhaps you know I'm the incoming president for that society, that's itself an interesting story. Uh, When I first learned about this thing called the American Musicological Mm -hmm. Society, my first assumption was that, well, this must be the Society of Musicologists that study American music. Mm -hmm. 
But no, this was a society of musicologists, most of whom happened to be in America, and most of whom were trained in a Germanic way of doing this thing called mm. musicology, Wissenschaft, to use the German term, mm. uh, in terms of the kind of study we would do. And so it was a very systematic, highly regimented, precise, positivist, to use the scientific term, way of approaching music and its artifacts that privileged European art music, music for the concert hall, music later for the operatic stage. So the idea of dealing with popular music where you didn't have the fixed score or it had multiple hands involved in it or multiple versions coming out of it, that it didn't have the same kind of pedigree that the classics would have in terms of so-and-so taught, so-and-so taught, so-and-so. Mm. There was a lot of snobbishness surrounding the choice of musical topics that were deemed acceptable within elite academic circles. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it happens that American studies got to popular music faster than musicology did, but we eventually caught up. I think it's a general trend in society. Think about movies. I haven't done a study of the Oscars to see, but usually the really, you know, the blockbusters, the big popular movies are not considered all that serious. And occasionally maybe they'll win, you know, Jaws maybe won because it was this phenom, but very often they're looking for more serious, quote unquote, serious movies to give it some type of credibility almost. And so there's a thing about whatever is considered popular by the masses that somehow gets denigrated. And, and you use the word snobbish, and maybe that's part of it. Part of it could be protecting your turf. Part of it could be you don't want to adapt to what others are doing, which is a common thing in business. Or maybe there's something else. But we seem to have all these rules we put in place for what's acceptable, what's good culturally. And I don't know who made these rules. Who gets the right to make these rules? Well, I mean, you're from the business school, so let's talk about the commercial, the you know, commerce, the financial incentives. There is this notion that creators make the things they make because either a little bird sits on their shoulder, whispers into their ear, or they, you know, the heavens descend and a mm -hmm. vision appears. Mm -hmm. Most creators, and I'm looking right now at a photo up on my wall of a, a gentleman who's an artist who makes art out of things like, in this particular thing, a, a V8 engine. Most artists want to make money. They want to make a living. And so they have to make things that the marketplace will somehow reward them for if they make them. One of the funny things about Beethoven is that after he writes the Ninth Symphony, one of the next things he writes is a set of easy pieces for piano, bagatelles. And his publisher says, you know, Beethoven, I can sell these. You know, mm -hmm. your name is on them. I can sell them. But, you know, the public expects you to do something that's more esoteric than this. I, you know, I'd have better success marketing your material if you give me something a little bit more exotic. So the thing that Beethoven goes and does is he writes the five last quartets that we are still arguing about 200 years later about what exactly is going on in these pieces of music. Now, Beethoven was a master craftsperson. He understood how to put things together. You look at his sketches, you know he labored hard about these things. But it can be argued he wrote those for money. So artists do this all the time. Yeah, and in the world of art, Michelangelo, what did he do? It was a commission to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Leonardo da Vinci, the genius that he was, yes, he did a lot of things on his own with drawings. I mean, there's nothing he wasn't interested in, and not just him, but just about every artist. They were commissioned to make a painting of somebody so they could put that up in their home. I'm smiling at you as we're talking about this because, yes, commissions, and one could argue a commission from, say, the Medici family is different than somebody on the streets of Florence buying something inexpensive. And I'm smiling at you. I'm thinking about La Traviata, the opera. You know, what's the difference between a prostitute mm -hmm. and a courtesan? <laughs> and the difference is, you know, how much more the courtesan's uh, Get clients paid, so yeah, gets paid and, and the standing of, of the, you know, so, you know, Madame de Pompadour, you know, nobody calls her uh, anything other than, you know, this really elevated individual, although, in, you know, so it is a matter of how much one can get for one's services and who is the person willing to pay. So popular music, by its very definition, has a broader audience that is typically paying less mm -hmm. than the elite audience that is only going to pay, or that will pay a lot, but the consumption level is reduced. So again, thinking about Beethoven, his quartets, he wrote three quartets for the Russian Count Razumovsky. 
And there's a, the Razumovsky house is, I believe, still in Vienna. So, you know, in one of them, he quotes a Russian folk tune. So, you know, he's catering to his client mm-hmm. who is paying him good money. Yeah. We call that satisfying your customer in the business school. There, there we go. In the business world. Right. And in fact, we say that's actually a very good thing. Jeff Bezos, Amazon, delight the customer. Right. That's not a complicated, that's a one-on-one idea. So I think, you know, the idea for some academics is that they want to join the elites of the Razumovskis, of uh, the Louis Cators, of, you know, these people who are commissioning elite work. So we'll talk about elite work and not this work that is you know, consumed by millions. Yeah, and it's just an interesting thing. Back to Stephen Sondheim. So what right. did you learn about him? Okay, so going back to, like I said, when I first started working on him in 1991, it was a little bit before that, that when I sent my application to Cal, it included a paper on a Stephen Sondheim musical from a class I had taken at the University of Washington. And one of my professors there encouraged me to consider working on Stephen Sondheim. And I said, you are guaranteeing that I'm never going to get a job because (laughs) our market, our market is not in a place to reward somebody who works on that kind of repertoire. For the same logic we just described. Right, exactly. So the marketplace that, as I understood it, for musicologists did not have space for it to hire somebody who was a Sondheim scholar. So now fast forward, I'm the incoming president of the American Musicological Society. (laughs) We have changed. This gentleman, his name is Joseph Kerman, he said, well, somebody has to be the first. Why shouldn't it be you? Hmm. And I thought, well, you know, that sounds like somebody from a business school in one sense. You know, you cornered the market on Stephen Sondheim, <laughs> which, again, you know, the jeopardy if I didn't do it well mm-hmm. or the market wasn't ready for my product, then, you know, I would have tanked. I would not have gotten But you did it at a very high level. I did it, it at a high well level received. at the institution at the time that was considered the number one institution for musicological studies. Mm-hmm. Funny story, I applied to Dartmouth. I didn't get the job the first time. It was a failed search. I applied the next year. I got the job. And I got it from working on Stephen Sondheim. So, so you asked me what I learned. Yes. I don't know if we want to come well, to that. Well, yeah, I actually have a lot of questions. We're not going to have nearly enough time to go talk about all of them. But just, first of all, just in a nutshell, how do you study something? Do you talk, was he alive at the time? Well, he's, well, he's, he's alive right, right now. now. Thank he, goodness. Did you interview him? Is that what you well, do? Well, because I was talking about a biography of musical style, I was studying the works and letting the works tell me what... What about his opinion of those works? Is that relevant or not? Well, that's an... Inter- I mean, this is... Kind kind of a scholarly debate because in certain ways, you know, Sondheim as the creator may know more about his works than other people do. Mm -hmm. I have to say that in my work on Stephen Sondheim, there were moments when I would know more about his past than he remembered. Mm -hmm. And so I could tell him things about his Mm -hmm. time at Williams and the classes he took that he had forgotten he had even taken those classes. So there are things in the music that may end up there Almost because of the craft, he puts them in and is just unaware that they're there. He It's almost automatic. Where then I unpeel the onion and say, these are things right. that are happening here that he's put in here that it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I did. So there were times I did end up talking to Steve. It's kind of weird calling him that. And every now and then I'll continue to email him and ask him Mm. questions. But for the most part, I treat him just as one more interlocutor. I figure I'm smart enough to figure out what's going on in the music. And if he wants to challenge me, he will. I think the biggest compliment he paid me when I come out with my book is he asked me to send copies to two of his colleagues' names that your viewers would know. Jonathan Tunick, his orchestrator, and Hal Prince, uh, director, did a lot. So I figured... That's a good sign. Uh, right there. Other than the fact that he wasn't paying me to send them these books that I had to cough up the money to do that, I thought, well, that's a cost I'm willing to absorb because that's an imprimatur of my work that speaks volumes. Yeah. So would you say that part of your work in analyzing his music and the style of his music is that you are reverse engineering what he was doing? So you could describe the components, the kind of the periodic table of Stephen Sondheim? Well, as you know, my book is called How Sondheim Found His Sound. And so it was kind of an excavation of what goes into making Sondheim's work the way it is. And so for your listeners, the book is broken up into two parts, two chapters, and an example of what I'm talking about. So the first one 
talks about Sondheim's love of classical music. He has a very extensive record collection, and I got a hold of the actual cards of his record collection, and then made some extrapolations of the composers that he privileged, Rachmaninoff and Ravel being among them, and how those composers find echoes in his work. Then I have a chapter on the great songwriters, Mm -hmm. which he also loved. And so, you know, examined the different kinds of things that happen in Irving Berlin and George Gershwin, Mm -hmm. Jerome Kern, Richard Rogers, Cole Porter, Harold Arlen, and others. Which you knew so much about. You said the great Uh, American songbook. Because I was this Nordstrom pianist and I (laughs) played all that music. And so, other perspective. And also as a classical pianist, I had played Rachmaninoff and Ravel. So these were things I was familiar with. And so that then lent me a natural into that. And then I demonstrate in the se- in the first example what I call pulling it apart, where it's like, okay, we'll take this song, I'll pull it apart and show elements of all these different mm. musical mm. reference in it. Then the next few chapters were more about his drama. He was a, a disciple, a protege of Oscar Hammerstein II, and so talk about his theatrical vision and how that got developed. He's also one of the few people who's not director or otherwise associated with the film industry who was asked to be, I can't remember the exact title, but basically the guy who picks films for the Telluride Film Festival because he's such a cineast himself. (laughs) And so I then looked at the kinds of films he had talked about, (laughs) kinds of films he had chosen for Telluride and other places and said, okay, so some of the ideas that happen in film happen in some of his music. So my favorite example at the end of one of the songs is called Bowler Hat is from Pacific Overtures. The very last line is this gentleman admiring himself in the mirror. It's 1850s or so, and he's wearing the latest fashion. Mm -hmm. And he says, it's called a cutaway. And that is what that particular outfit he is Mm -hmm. wearing is. It's called that dress was called cutaway. But the whole song is a series of cutaways. If you know the breakfast sequence in Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. as they age over the course of two minutes, that's the filmic technique is called a cutaway. That's what that song had been. And the whole song is about this man doing an autopsy or cutting away his life bit by bit so he becomes yeah. less and less. Wow. And so there was this triple entendre in that final line that borrowed a lot from the fact that right. Sondheim right. liked film. Did you spend much time talking about and thinking about and analyzing his personal life? He was, as you, I think, mentioned already, he was gay and Jewish. And was that part of the so, uh, Yeah, I, There's two so, parts to this. Did you, right. Was that, that part of the story, or is that, was that part of the attraction to him as opposed to a dozen other geniuses, or neither of the above? I'd say neither of the above. I mean, as I said, I took this class at the University of Washington on Sondheim's music. I had people back when I was in college talk about my own compositions sounding like Sondheim, which, again, mm-hmm. my elite wow. self found that kind of insulting. It's like, no, I'm higher than just a musical theater composer. <laughs> but what's entrancing to me about Sondheim is that the way that he writes his music and the way that he conveys the life of a character through his choice of notes is very much the way that certain opera composers do Mm. that kind of work. So you can look at a Verdi aria and see that embedded in the music itself, it can tell you something about what the character is doing, thinking, feeling. And Sondheim writes that way. And that's what my book was trying to dissect, if you will. How did he come about knowing how to make the character feel and behave that way? So if Mm. you only looked at the music... You'd know. So, for example, a little night music. And nobody ever sings this correctly, but Sondheim wrote this in a particular way. There's a song called Now. It's a lawyer. And the lawyer is kind of, you know, A, B, you know, presenting his case to do certain things. And so it's one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. Now, as a sweet possibility, someone so lavishly down from her lap. Uh, it's a kind of a patter song. But what Sondheim writes is not now as a sweet possibility. It's what he writes is now as a sweet so let me do that again now and what that does is that the lawyer can't wait for the beat (laughs) his now is ahead of now he's an impatient man Mm -hmm. and the music tells you that he's an impatient man if you know to look at the music and unfortunately most singers learn through just somebody singing it back to them so they don't get that one impulsive moment do you think listeners pick up on that they understand that i think it at some level At some level, I think in my opera class that I teach here, I do a a mnemonic with my hand 
starting with my uh, guess that's your pointing finger, index finger. The music conveys the drama. Thumb is the drama. That's the best opera. That's what happens. The music conveys the drama. And I think Sondheim is one of our finest musical theater composers because of the depth of the drama baked into the music itself. Yeah. Wow. So interesting. Do you think he actually read your book? Oh, yeah. It sounds like it's like dissecting everything he's done that he may have done. Would you say he did it more intuitively or did he... Like, how did he well, create this? Some, some of it is definitely deliberate, just as yeah. Beethoven has yeah. sketches, yeah. Sondheim has sketches. Because he often works with motifs, he has to come up with the right motif mm-hmm. and turn it in certain ways so it works in a certain way. Yeah. So the song I analyzed in my book is called What Can You Lose? It's from the movie Dick Tracy. He wrote five mm-hmm. songs for that film. And it's a totally motivic song. And just as Beethoven's Fifth opens with a four-note motive, the song opens with a four-note motive that then Sondheim rings the changes on. So that's not something that happens accidentally. Yeah. So, Steve, great conversation. We're almost at the end of our time. And I want to ask you the question I like to ask a lot of my guests on the SIDCAST. Imagine that you can transport yourself back to when you were 21 years old and you kind of just magically cozy up next to the 21-year-old Steve Swain doing whatever you were doing at the age of 21. What bit of advice would you give him? What would you say to him? Well, thank you. Uh, That's a challenging question. And if I can also add the 28-year-old Steve to help to tell the 21-year-old Steve what to do from the perspective of the 62-year-old Steve. Since we've talked about Sondheim and different musicals, I want to tell you about when I saw Sunday in the Park with George, Mm. and I highly recommend the musical to folks. People, Some people don't like the second act because they think it's perfect just the first act by itself, but the second act is all about what happens to artists who constrain their vision Mm. and try to maybe play too much to the market as opposed to fulfilling hmm. who they are. And so the fi- one, the next to last song, it's called Move On. And it's this character who comes back as a spirit, more or less, to tell the modern artist that it's time for him to move on. Stop worrying where you're going, move on. If you can know where you're going, you've gone. You've got to move on. Lyrics go on to say I, you know, that this woman who made a very difficult choice in her life to leave... Uh, one person to marry another and then to come to America, she says, I chose and my world was shaken. So what? The choice may have been mistaken. The choosing was not. Mm. You have to move on. I think you've got to move on. Sondheim would correct me if I didn't get the words right. And so that's the thing I would tell my younger self, that don't worry so much about whether or not the choice is right or wrong. Mm. Choose. Make a choice. And from there, you'll figure out where to go. That's great. And I I was saying, well, it doesn't have to be profound. Whatever you come up with, that was great. That's a lesson I think we all can embrace. Professor Steve Swain, what a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate your time and a chance to get to know you and tell some stories that we all could learn from. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the SIDCast. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.